Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Jose Torres is walking out the back door right now. It's his last Sunday, and anything could happen. So I don't know if you heard him back there singing along or not, but uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series this morning, The Summer of Love, as Steve said. And uh, I hope you've been benefiting from these messages. I, I hope they've uh, proved to be helpful and beneficial for you. And of course, we know that uh, several of you have been traveling throughout the summer, and, uh, and you might have missed a Sunday or two. I want to remind you that all of the messages from this series uh, are available through our website and on our podcast. You can always go back and, and listen to those, or if there was one that was special or meaningful to you, go back and listen again. But this morning, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. That's where we'll spend our time today, Mark chapter 12. And uh, when I preached a few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, from Luke chapter 10, and we focused that day on what Jesus said is the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I guess we're working in reverse order because this morning I want to look at what Jesus affirmed as the greatest commandment, and wouldn't you know it also has to do with love. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to set the scene for you just a little bit because context is key. And so let me explain what's been going on in Mark's gospel up to this point. The events of Mark chapter 12 happened during Passion Week. Okay, that's the, the week that led up to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. We call that Passion Week. began on uh, Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, leads up to Good Friday and his crucifixion. And that's where we are in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. He's at the end of, of his life in the flesh. He's traveled to Jerusalem with his disciples. They entered into the city. And in Mark chapter 11, we read that he was confronted by the religious leaders and they began questioning his authority. Okay, these guys were always questioning Jesus, always questioning his authority. They, they didn't like his message. They didn't like his methods. They saw him as a threat. And quite honestly, they just wanted to be rid of him. But Jesus responded to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, by telling them a parable and then we read this in Mark 12, 12. It says, The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, we're not going to read the parable that Jesus spoke against them this morning, but it's known as the parable of the tenants. And as you might guess, it does not paint the religious leaders in a favorable light and he speaks this about them in front of the crowd, and they are furious about this. But seeing that the crowd is with Jesus, the crowd's on Jesus' side, uh, the leaders decide they're going to walk away, and they're going to wait for a more opportune time uh, to try to trap Jesus. Now look at verse 13, and this is the setup to our passage today. It says, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, so this is what happens in the bulk of Mark chapter 12. For the next 14 verses, it's the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus in his words. They ask him all kinds of questions, trying to get him to say something that would be incriminating, something that might turn the crowds against him. And this is what's taking place as we come to our passage today, starting in verse 28. Here's what it says. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Now pause right there. The teachers of the law, remember, are, are one of the groups that Jesus had spoken the parable of the tenants against. 
And it's important to note that the NIV calls this man a, a teacher of the law, but other versions identify him as a scribe. He's of the same profession as the man who we saw in Luke chapter 10, who is called there an expert in the law. And I guess what I want you to know this morning is that all of those terms are interchangeable. Okay, teacher of the law, expert in the law, scribe, that's all the same thing. And William Barclay points out in his commentary that, that the whole purpose of these teachers of the law was to interpret the law and to know it inside and out. That's, that's this man. He's a scribe, he's an expert in the law, and he's been listening to Jesus and his interaction with these men who are trying to catch him in his words. And verse 28 goes on to say, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So this man, this scribe, he actually likes how Jesus is handling himself. He genuinely appreciates how Jesus answers the questions that are being thrown at him. And so the scribe decides that he's going to ask Jesus a question of his own, not to trap Jesus, but again, because, because he really thinks Jesus is giving good answers. He wants to hear what Jesus would have to say. And so he asks, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And I wonder if that seems like a funny question to you, uh, because aren't they all important? Like, they're all in there. Aren't, wouldn't they all have some amount of importance? Why would he ask something like that? Well, this question was actually one that was frequently debated among the various rabbis. And we've seen before that there was this tendency to take each one of the Old Testament commands and then expand it into hundreds of different rules and regulations. But there was also this desire to always try to express the law succinctly to put it in as few words as possible. And that's where this question comes from. The man is essentially asking Jesus, how would you sum up the entire law? How, how would you put it in just a few words? And Jesus answers him in verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And this is where I really want to dial in this morning because in his response, Jesus really defines love for us. And we already looked at what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, but this morning I want to focus on what it means to love God. What was Jesus' understanding of this love for God, and, and how should we go about it? Now, in answering this man's question, Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and it's a passage that's known as the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we spent some time studying the Shema about a year and a half ago or so when we were reading through the Bible. We came to the book of Deuteronomy. So you might remember that, but I want to remember uh, or revisit it this morning because of the over 600 commands in the Old Testament, this is the one that Jesus points to as the most important. Now, Shema is actually a Hebrew word, and it means hear. But it also carries with it the, the idea of obedience. So shema means listen and obey. And it's the very first word in the command. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 reads, Hear, O Israel, or shema, O Israel, listen and obey. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this command really became central to the Jewish faith. In fact, faithful Jews still pray the Shema twice a day, once in the morning and then once in the evening, as a reminder that in all things, in all of our life, we are to love God supremely. That's the ultimate command of the Shema, to love God. But it's important to note that there are actually several different Hebrew words that all get translated into our one English word, love. So I want to show you what the the Hebrew word is in Deuteronomy 6, and it's the word ahava. Ahava means love. Now in the West, when we think about love, we primarily think in terms of feeling, right? But ahava is more than a feeling. And so Boston was actually theologically accurate in this, right? Love is more than a feeling. Ahava goes beyond mere emotion. It involves faithfulness, it involves obedience, and it involves action. And Lois Verberg talks about this in her book, Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus, when she says this. She says, when the Israelites were commanded to love God, we can read it as not so much about passionate feelings as much as utter commitment to loyalty toward God, the one they obeyed. And it's not that that feelings and emotions aren't important, but with ahava, they aren't primary. What drives ahava isn't emotion, it's devotion. And devotion is what the greatest commandment is all about. So we've got this command to to love God, ahava for God. But then in verse 5, we're given three more words to expand our understanding of ahava even more. And in the English, those words are usually translated as heart, soul, and strength. Sometimes we get mind or understanding thrown in there as well, but it all originates from just three Hebrew words. Let me take just a minute to show you what those Hebrew words are. The first word is is the word that's usually translated as heart, and it's the Hebrew word levav. And uh, we often talk about our heart in a way that distinguishes Uh, between like our our feelings and thoughts, right? We'll talk about distinguishing between our heart and between our mind. And we might say something like he was thinking with his heart, but he wasn't thinking with his head. And what we mean is that the person was feeling, but they didn't really think it through, right? But lavav is actually different. Lavav actually incorporates both of those ideas, both feeling and thinking into one. It has as much to do with the mind as it does with the heart. Lavav is understanding. It's thoughtfulness. It's consideration. And when we read the word heart in the Shema and indeed throughout the Old Testament, we should think in terms of both intellect and emotion. So this is telling us that that we're to love God with thoughtful consideration. We're to love him with understanding. That's loving God with all your lavav. And then we have the second Hebrew word, and, uh, and it's pronounced nefesh. And this is the word that's often translated as soul, but in the Hebrew, it actually carries the idea of life itself. Loving God with all your nefesh means that as long as there is breath in your lungs and strength in your bones, that you are going to use all of it to follow after God. It has to do with our aspirations. It has to do with our desires in life. All of that pointed toward loving and serving God. But there's another aspect to nefesh as well. 
And it's a willingness to lay your life down if need be. Many Jewish people have actually spoken the Shema with their dying breath as a final commitment to God. And uh, I shared the story before about Rabbi Akiva, who lived in the first century. And Rabbi Akiva was tortured to death by the Romans for teaching the Torah. But instead of crying out in pain as, as they were doing this to him, Akiva was actually heard reciting the Shema. And some of his disciples heard this, and they called out to him, Teacher, even now, like even in the midst of, of greatest pain, you're going to recite the Shema? And Rabbi Akiva responded in the midst of great suffering, saying, All my life I have wondered if I would ever have the privilege to love God with all my nefesh. Now that the opportunity has come, shall I not grasp it with joy? That's nefesh. That's loving God with all your nefesh, your very life, even to the point of laying your life down for him if necessary. And one more word, and it's the one that we often read as strength, but in the Hebrew, it's the word miod. And this is the most curious word of the three because it literally means very. And outside of the Shema, miod is never used as a noun, but rather as an adverb. Let me give you one example. In Genesis chapter 1, after God created the world, he didn't just cre uh, create it and declare it good, the Hebrew word tov, he declared it tov miod, very good. But here in Deuteronomy 6, miod is used as a noun. So the passage literally reads, love the Lord your God with all your very. And there are several ways that scholars have understood and explained this. One understanding is that miod is used to describe a person's strength or a person's might. It's like giving it everything you've got, all of your very. Another thought is that it refers to consciousness or a determination of the mind. And this is likely why when the passages quoted in the New Testament were given four descriptive words instead of three, it's because they're likely translating miot as both mind and strength. And then another thought is that it also includes our possessions, all of our material goods, everything that we own, all of our very. That's miot. And this is how we are to love God. According to the Old Testament, which Jesus pointed to as the, the greatest command, we are to love God with all our lavav our thoughts and considerations, all our nefesh, our desires and aspirations, even being willing to lay our lives down for God, and all our miod, all our might, all our determination, all of our strength. It's everything we are and everything we have all being poured out in ahava, love for God, heart, soul, and strength. And this is what Jesus pointed to as the greatest commandment. And admittedly, this is a really high bar, right? This is an incredibly high bar that Jesus sets. And, and maybe this is a good time to pause and just do a little bit of self-evaluation and ask yourself, how am I doing when it comes to living this out? How, how am I doing when it comes to loving God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my strength? Like are all of your thoughts and considerations about God? Are all of your desires and aspirations pointed toward God? 
Are you using all of your strength to love and to serve him? I know it's an Old Testament command, but it really falls within the part of the law that's known as the moral law, and it's still as applicable for followers of Jesus today as it was when it was first given. And it should cause us to pause and to think about our lives and to think about how we're living and to to think about what we're running after and to see that, that what the greatest commandment calls for is total and absolute devotion to God in every area of life. That's what's called for in the Shema. In fact, to that point, I want to shift back now to our Mark chapter 12 passage because I want you to notice the scribe's response to all of this. In verse 32, Jesus has answered his question about the greatest command. He's pointing to Deuteronomy 6. He's pointing to the Shema. And the scribe says this in response. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, I wonder if you, uh, if you notice there are several similarities between this account and the one that we studied in Luke chapter 10 just a few weeks ago, that, that passage that we studied of the Good Samaritan. Both accounts involve a scribe or an expert in the law. Both of those men asked Jesus a similar question, and the answer to both of their questions were identical. Okay, love God and love people. But the man in our text today is so different than the one described in Luke chapter 10. We're told that that scribe in Luke 10 came to test Jesus. That was his motive. He wanted to come and test Jesus. And he didn't like Jesus' response. And that was because he wanted to justify himself. That's what the text tells us. But here we see almost the exact opposite. The scribe in Mark 12 seems really happy with the answer that Jesus has given. He wholeheartedly agrees with Jesus. And he even goes on to add that these commands are more important than offerings and sacrifices. And I don't want you to miss the significance of that. Remember, this man is an expert in the law, a teacher of the law. And and so these these commands, like following them out and and practicing them, that that would be everything to this man. But remember, the, the scribe in Luke 10, he thought that was enough. He thought that his offerings and his sacrifices were what made him right with God. But this man in Mark 12 understands that empty religion is not what God is after. That what God is after is actually our hearts. And, and this scribe seems to really understand that, at least on an intellectual level. And Jesus picks up on that fact. And in verse 34, we read, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The text says that Jesus saw that the man had answered wisely. And what is it exactly that that Jesus saw? How, How did he see that? Well, I think first he saw that the man wasn't trying to play games. He had a genuine interest. He had a genuine appreciation for our Lord. Secondly, I think Jesus saw that the man had a pure intent. His heart wasn't to test Jesus or to trap Jesus as the the others in the crowd were trying to do. He actually came to listen and to hear what Jesus would say. And finally, I think Jesus saw that the man wasn't trying to justify himself as the other scribe had. No, this man answered wisely, or another translation says he answered discreetly. And 
that word indicates that the man just had a singular intent. There, there were no ill intentions. There was no pretense. And because of that, Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And that's a pretty interesting phrase. Uh, and we read that and we maybe think, wow, you know, that's, that's great. This guy basically got a thumbs up from Jesus, right? That's awesome. But here's the tragedy of this whole passage. That's where it ends. Having earned some amount of commendation from Jesus, the man never goes any farther. And doesn't that seem odd to you? Because Jesus didn't say you're in the kingdom of God. He said you're not far from the kingdom of God. And if I'm not far, like I want to know how to get all the way in. But not this man. He seems perfectly content to, to just agree with Jesus and then walk away. And Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this in his book, The Kingdom of God. I want you to hear what he writes. He says, This man was so pleased that our Lord agreed with him, that he had got the answer he expected, that, that he was just ready to go on his way. Everything was all right. There was no acknowledgement of failure, no sense of need. He did not realize his need of salvation. He was a pure theorist. He did not see that what he agreed with condemned him and put him in this precarious position where he should be desperate. He did not ask this vital question, what must I do to be saved? And because of this, Jesus responded, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And while we might be tempted to think, like, that's a pretty good position to be in, Lloyd-Jones also points out that in the final analysis, being not far from the kingdom of God is of no advantage at all. Hebrews 9.27 tells us plainly that it's appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment. And on that day, the only thing that will matter is whether or not you are in the kingdom. Not far will count for nothing. And I highlight that this morning because I imagine there are some listening today who are living not far from the kingdom of God. Maybe you come to church and you agree with the, the morality and the ethic of Jesus. You like the teachings of Christianity. You like that Jesus agrees with you on most things. But you've never let the gospel go farther than your head. You've never let it penetrate your heart. Maybe Christianity is something that you've, you've studied and you've debated and you enjoy thinking about it. But has it affected you? Has it changed you in the core? The greatest commandment is that we should love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. But the moment we agree with that, then we should go on to ask, if this is what God requires of me, then have I done it? have I done this? And the answer to that question is no. You have not done it, and neither have I. You may be in full agreement with everything that Jesus said, but the moment we see that we have not applied it, that we have not practiced it, indeed that we have rebelled against it, we should be cut to the heart as the men were in the book of Acts and ask that vital question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers that question for us in Romans 6.23 when he says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. The only way to be saved from the penalty of sin is through faith in Jesus Christ. The scribe in Mark 12 was not far from the kingdom of God. In fact, he was closer than he knew. 
standing right in front of him was the one who could forgive all of his sin, save him from the penalty of it and give him eternal life. But he failed to understand one critical truth that it's not those who agree with Jesus who are saved, it's those who believe in him and receive him. That's what John tells us in the start of his gospel, that to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. And my question to you this morning is, have you done that? Have you believed and received Jesus Christ? I wanna encourage you this morning not to simply agree with him and walk away. Instead, let the greatest commandment show you your greatest need and then find that need fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself, his humble coming, his perfect obedient living, his sacrificial dying and his powerful resurrecting. He did that to pay for your sins and for mine. Don't be content living not far from God. God has made a way for you to come all the way in, to be forgiven of every sin and to enjoy his presence for all of eternity. If you wanna know more about what that means, uh, if you want to know more about how to do that, how to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'll be up front after the service. I think Steve will be here as well. We would love to talk with you more about that. But let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I thank you so much that while our love for you has been imperfect in every way, that you so loved us that you gave your one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I thank you for that hope. I thank you for that truth. I thank you for your love this morning, God. And for those here this morning who have surrendered to the love of, of Christ, surrendered and, and believed in him and received him, God, we read this command and we acknowledge that it's as important for us today as when it was first given. God, that the call on our life is to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And while we know that we cannot carry that out perfectly, God, we still want to run after it. And I pray that you would show us this morning, illuminate in our lives, God, the, the areas where we are failing at that, where we are putting our strength and our effort and our thought into things that will not last. And may this be a time, Lord, for us to correct course, to repent of those things, and to recommit to you this morning that, God, we want to love you with everything. And, Lord, if there are those here this morning who have never surrendered to the love of Christ, maybe they're living not far from the kingdom of God, coming to church, maybe listening online, uh, maybe part of a group, but they, they just they love hearing about Christ. They love hearing about Christianity. It seems to line up with what they believe, but the gospel's never moved from their head to their heart. I pray that today might be the day, Lord. I pray that they would take a bold step of, of receiving and believing Jesus Christ, recognizing that he is the only way to salvation, that it's not those who agree with Jesus who are saved, it's those who believe and receive. And may today be the day that they do that, God. I thank you for making a way. I thank you that you made a way for us to come all the way into your kingdom. And we know, God, that the time is short that we are not guaranteed this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. And so I pray that the hearts would be moved today to take action. Thank you for loving us. Help us to love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.